Hello and welcome to the ABA Journal's Modern Law Library. I'm Jason Taché, legal affairs reporter for the Journal. Today we have with us Matt Stroud, who has written a new book called The Thin Blue Lie. Matt Stroud is an investigative reporter with a focus on companies that do business with police departments and prisons. Formerly on the staff of the Associated Press, Bloomberg News, and The Verge, he's also written for publications such as The Atlantic, Politico, BuzzFeed, and The Intercept. Matt, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to start with the title of your book, The Thin Blue Lie. What is the lie that you wanted to uncover in this book? The lie is in the conversation that government and police leaders tend to have with citizens in the wake of major police interactions. So the example that I pull out in the book and that I tend to talk about quite a bit is is that of Laquan McDonald. So Laquan McDonald is shot and killed by an officer in, in the Chicago Police Department. And it becomes a major point of controversy because a video that showed that depicted the killing um, ends up not being released by the Chicago Police Department or the city of Chicago for a period of 14 months in the wake of the of the killing. And it inspires protests. And when the video actually is released, it, it shows a very violent interaction and, and points to a problem within the Chicago Police Department about the way that officers interact with certain groups of people and in certain circumstances. And it really uh, brings up a lot of questions about how police officers do their jobs. And when Rahm Emanuel was forced to confront all of those problems, he stood in front of his citizens and he talked about how he was going to use, uh, that the solution to this problem was that he was going to spend millions of dollars on tasers and on body cameras. And that solution that he provided, the answer was a lie. I mean, he knew that those two solutions were band-aids at best to solve a host of significant problems. And so that's what I wanted to point out. I wanted to point out that technology was being used in a way that was telling a lie to citizens about the ways that uh, police interactions occur and the solutions that government officials and police leaders put forward. So that was something I wanted to talk to you about a little bit, is that that tension that you write about in the book, uh, at least through my reading, is between digital solutionism, as you just talked about, this idea that for every complex problem, there's a simple technological fix, and then the systemic cultural reform that, as you say, police leaders are either unwilling or unable to undertake for a number of reasons. What are the challenges that police leadership have when it comes to making these more systemic cultural reforms that you seem to be in more favor of than some of the technological solutions you write about? And that's a really good question, and thanks for asking. Uh, The police leaders and government leaders, I mean, they're not operating in a vacuum, as as our our national leaders (laughs) that are new to the office are, are now finding. You have institutional constructs that they have to work with, such as police unions, such as, you know, thousands and thousands of police officers who also have interests and who also have ideas about the ways that they should perform their jobs. And it is very difficult to get through those roadblocks uh, and to change minds of people who lead unions and other organizations that that affect the way that uh, police do their jobs. And so these bigger institutional changes are, are very difficult. And they would take a groundswell of of interest from you know city councils and police leaders um, 
nationwide to really make these changes work and make these changes happen. And in the face of that, in the face of that trouble, government leaders, police leaders, they are very, they're public. I mean, they're, they're creatures of, of elections <laughs> uh, and of their, of their jobs. And so they need to come up with a solution. They need to have something to tell people. And so that's where these technological solutions come forward. I mean, it's, it is an answer that is easier than we need to change the way that policing exists and the way that police officers do their jobs, and, you know, the way that they've fundamentally done their jobs for years. And so I, I can empathize with uh, the idea that they have trouble making these broad institutional changes, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about the fact that these broad institutional changes probably should happen. To dig a little bit deeper into that, early in the book, you talk about a report that comes out after the riots in the 60s that the Johnson administration had put together, and it listed a whole number of community-based policing reforms that would improve public safety and public police relations. Um, I think you put the price tag at somewhere around $21 billion in today's dollars. What were some of those recommended reforms and what was the reaction to them? Some of the recommended reforms included community policing efforts and ensuring that police officers play a bigger role in community groups and that they are more visible in their communities and that they take part in in civic conversations and it was a, I mean, this report was called a challenge of the challenge of crime in a free society, and it really did take a comprehensive look at, at the at the role of police and the idea that police were becoming more like a military force than a force that was designed to to serve the public good. And so it made suggestions along these lines that police should not be a force that is confronting. A community, but rather a force that is that is within the community and, and listens to the community and is a part of it. The response to it to say that it was muted would be an exaggeration. Uh, Johnson himself uh, said that the report was overly harsh and that it didn't give police departments or law enforcement in general credit for the successful work it had already done to change policing in certain ways. So the report didn't catch on. And I think that price tag was a part of it, as well as the issues that I, that I mentioned earlier. There were huge institutional constructs around the way that police operated and how they hired, um, how police leaders hired and the equipment that they used. And those things were not going to change. So one of the technologies that you spend a lot of time talking about in the book is the taser, the electrical gun that shoots out prongs to uh, be a non-lethal alternative to a gun to subdue an individual. Um, This was an attempt by many police departments around the country to have an alternative to using a gun, which was causing a number of problems as unarmed or fleeing people were getting killed by police officers because of gun violence. So this would be a step if I read their intentions correctly, to move away from kind of the dangerous militarization that they had been going through. But to take a step back, why was this the company, or the technology rather, to sink your teeth into for the sake of this book? I find the technology really interesting, and I find its history really interesting. And it ties into a lot of the conversations that we've been having uh, since uh, Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson and beyond that. 
this was a technology that was born out of uh, the riots of uh, Los Angeles in the mid-60s, and it came from a scientist, a physicist, who uh, watched those riots and uh, similar occurrences where you know people were being shot and killed by police officers and said, you know, I can come up with a technical solution to this. You know, I, I can come up with something in my garage that will solve these problems, that will effectively solve the problem of police killing people with firearms on the streets. And he didn't do this at the behest of a huge company. He was working for Hughes Aircraft when he initially made this decision, um, but he didn't get funding from Hughes Aircraft or anybody else. He decided that he was going to go about trying to solve this problem in his garage. And the process that he took I mean, he quit his job. He ended up retiring. I mean, he he very much believed in this, in this idea that he could he could solve this problem of killing by police. And uh, yeah, he became a salesman and and tried to tried to peddle this this device for years and years, mostly unsuccessfully. And the fact that this idea started where it did with Jack Cover and his ambition, and the fact that it took, I mean decades before it really started to catch on that that process of, of how an idea about policing eventually turns into a multi-billion dollar business was was fascinating to me and something that I as a as a business reporter who who also covers crime was was something that that I really wanted to sink my teeth into and so something you write about later in the book is that even though it was marketed the taser was marketed as a non-lethal tool to be used by police in fact uh, there were a number of deaths attributable, as well as there were a number of police volunteers around the country that had been tased for a demonstration exercise that had been hurt through the process. Uh, I think you talk about a shattered vertebrae, um, heart trouble, among other health ailments after this experiment. But what I'm interested in is that you open the book with a vignette uh, where you're at Taser International in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, you were there for your reporting. And before you left, one of the employees at Taser International asked you if you, quote, wanted to take a ride, uh, meaning did you want to get tased? Did you know about the dangers of these other volunteers uh, that had come before you, before you made the decision to be tased? Uh, no, I didn't. Certainly not to the extent that I, I eventually became aware. I mean, I was aware, like most people, of the fallout from what was that? I forget which college it was actually. I, I want to say it was down in Florida where um, a student was protesting John Kerry and ended up being tased, and he yelled, "Don't tase me, bro!" Like uh, that was that was the way that I thought about the taser. I thought of it as as kind of a a parlor trick, something that could be painful, but something that you would get over, um, something that would hurt a little bit, but you know, wasn't really that big of a deal. And so when I said that I was gonna going to be tasered like it was not a big concern of mine and as as i point out in that vignette I, I was at taser international in scottsdale i was reporting on body cameras that was my interest at the time so i wasn't doing any deep background digging into tasers at all so no i, I wasn't aware of the of the risk at all and so what was the sensation like when you were tased on that fateful day I describe it for people, uh, you know, there, there is a description in the book, uh, which you should read, <laughs> but the, the description that I t tend to give to people is that it feels like a Charlie horse uh, that, that's taken over your entire body. Uh, to me, the, the, the more the striking, so to speak, part of it 
was how much it took command of your body. Like I was, I was unable to move. And of course, that's the idea. The idea is that it's supposed to make you fall to the ground so that you will comply so that, you know, an officer can place handcuffs on you. And it did that very well. And that was part of my realization that this was not a parlor trick. This was not something to be laughed at. You know, this was a serious weapon. I absolutely could not move. And and for the five second period uh, that the taser, the one pull of the trigger is designed to take hold of your body. I was I was completely out of it, and it felt like an eternity. It felt like it just wasn't wasn't ending. Yeah, so it was it was something that was uh, that I do not recommend that anybody go through, but was also a moment that that was kind of my uh, moment where I, I I realized that that this was something very serious. And did you experience any negative health consequences after going through that process? No, I did not. So there's a bit of an answer to this. So when I was shocked. I was shot in in the back, so I was I was instructed to face away from the person with the taser, and and two gentlemen who were employed by the company stood on either side of me and grabbed my grabbed my arms so that you know when I when I fell I would be guided to the ground. And when you see tasers demonstrated at conferences such as the International Association of Chiefs of Police conference every year, that's typically the protocol. The person is is facing away from the taser and they're shot in the back. Uh, in the lower back. The risks associated with a taser shock tend to occur uh, when somebody is shocked in the chest, toward the heart or around it. If you look at initial demonstrations of tasers and you know similar demonstrations at, uh, at conferences, the IACP over the year and elsewhere, early on, they were demonstrated by shooting uh, officers in the heart uh, and in, their, in the front of their body. Um, and as the Injuries and deaths related to taser shocks began to increase. Uh, those demonstrations started to, to, you know, they started to have people turn around because of the realization that, that it, was a, it was a risk. So in your book, you talk about a number of different technologies, not just taser. Uh, you looked at body cameras, uh, cell site simulators, which can be used by law enforcement to act as a cell tower to be able to find people's location, or at least the location of their device, and various data collection efforts taken by law enforcement. You talk about digital solutionism being one of the reasons why police departments look to these technologies or data collection processes. But were there other threads that pulled these specific technologies together that felt they belonged in the book? For me, my interest is in technologies that really catch on and that tend to be in response to major problems that that arise in policing. So, you know, the, the taser is a response to a uh, police officer shooting somebody with a firearm. Comstat was a response to a significant increase in crime in New York City and a couple of high-ranking police officials in New York City having ideas about ways to, to map technology using policing. So that's what ties them together for me, is, is the idea that, that these are the technologies that are not just one-off technologies that some police officer ha- has had and that have tried, that they've tried, but these are ones that have, that have really taken hold in policing and extended beyond one or two police departments. So one of the things that I took away from the book is that you describe 
I guess what could be summed up as a police industrial complex, a type of revolving door between those that serve as police officers that then go into private industry, uh, many of whom you talk about in this book go and work for companies like Taser International. I'm curious how you see, after reporting out this book, this relationship between public and private uh, has affected the development and dissemination of high-tech policing efforts. I mean, the clearest, and again, a reason why I, I was so focused on, on Taser, the, the clearest example of this to me is, is with Taser. When Tasers were first instituted, one of the complaints and, and possible problems with the technology um, was that there was no mechanism of training uh, or certification for use of the Taser. And so what Taser International very shrewdly came up with, and actually it, it's an idea that that uh, its predecessors, the company's predecessors, uh, people who ran the company's predecessors had thought of as well, is that uh, the company would actually take care of the certification. Uh, and the way that they would take care of the certification is that they would certify police to do the certifications and pay them to do it. And so police from one municipality would get certified from Taser and then go to the neighboring municipality and certify a bunch of police officers. And then as a part of that, you know, essentially sell the idea of the Taser to that police department, encouraging them to purchase more uh, Tasers. Then they would go to the next police department and sign on a new certification instructor from that department. And so it's just this this cycle in a, in a way, not only to sell the Tasers themselves, but to employ police officers to push the technology and also make money from the technology. Um, and the best of those trainers and the trainers who do the best uh, to market the tasers are actually brought on um, to Taser International to do marketing on a higher level. You mentioned body cameras. Uh, one of the uh, one of the, one of the biggest problems that emerged in body cameras is that one of those trainers uh, who was working for the Seattle Police Department that Taser brought on uh, to be a marketer. While he was with Taser International, he decided that he was going to start a company apart from Taser International selling body cameras. And he eventually quit his job and started a company called VView uh, that became a direct competitor of Taser International. And so it was uh, the idea of a police officer being brought on by Taser International and starting a new company. Um, and so, you know, you have police officers and uh, police leaders and company leaders who are all chasing after the dollars that, that police departments can provide. So I, I think one of the obvious specters of your book is uh, a profit margin being sought after by these companies. And I thought it was interesting. You, you talked about Taser's 2000, Taser International's 2001 uh, process of going public, uh, which in your words, you said it would temper the noble aspirations of the company to reduce police brutality uh, by the noble objectives of stock speculators, which I think is an obvious tension. We see this often. Uh, with publicly traded companies. I'm curious to your view beyond Taser International. Do you think a publicly traded company can ever keep its noble aspirations in the police technology space? You know, that's a great question. I'm sure it's possible, but that company would have to court, you know, shareholders who adhere to those, to those values. And that's going to be difficult to do when you open it up to the public market. The interest is going to be in, in making money. And I don't know. I, I, I didn't see it with Taser International. I, I think, you know, Taser International deserves a lot of credit. Uh, Axon Enterprise deserves a lot of credit 
and the Smiths deserve a lot of credit. They're the founders of that company deserve a lot of credit for creating this company that is now, you know, has a market cap of, you know, multiple billions of dollars, but you know, their, their ultimate mission is to, is to gain value for their shareholders. And, and, um, I know that they maintain a mission of making life safer for police officers and, and people on the other side of police interactions, but um, it's not clear to me that they could maintain a, a truly pure mission as a, as a publicly traded company. I don't know. What do you think? You know, I, I don't know. I, I was thinking recently I've been tracking the stakeholder revolt at Amazon over their facial recognition technology, if you followed this. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So for those that don't know, uh, Amazon has been selling their facial recognition technology to law enforcement agencies around the country. And there are a number of concerns. Uh, AI experts have weighed in saying that this technology shouldn't be sold to law enforcement. And stockholders have, or at least a minority share of stockholders, we'll find out how many when the vote happens, are concerned that this technology is raising a series of human rights issues and doesn't have the oversight and transparency required to be a part of the law enforcement's technical landscape. And the SEC has told Amazon that it has to have a vote on this issue. So this will be something that's forthcoming. But it does seem that there's at least a minority of folks that are invested in these major companies that are willing to take the stand. I mean, TBD on what's going to actually occur, but um, at least a minority of stakeholders are are raising this as an issue as we see currently. But then again, there aren't a ton of publicly traded companies that deal in specifically law enforcement and police technologies. Something like, you know, you get to see maybe Tyler Tech as they get more into policing could perhaps step on an issue that irritates their stockholders. But um, I don't know if there's a lot of other examples out there in, in the publicly traded space. A lot of these companies seem to be closely held. Is that right from your reporting? Yeah, that, that's what I found as well. One of the companies that I've found fascinating is Digital Ally. They're relatively small. They're in the body camera space. And they, I mean, they went right up against Axon in the body camera space. They're out of uh, Lenexa, Kansas. And because they ran up against Axon Enterprise and a host of other companies that are also trying to sell body cameras. Like they actually decided, I mean, another TBD on, on exactly what ends up happening with the company, but they seem to be moving in the direction of protecting patents and protecting patents only. So like their, their main victory over the last couple of years is that they developed a patent for a body camera that would engage immediately as soon as an officer, say, opens a door or engages the light bar on a cruiser. And they have sued any company that tries to market a product that uh, provides a similar option on their body cameras. You know, I've had conversations with the CEO of that company, and they very much would like to push in the direction of, of producing body cameras and, you know, are at least nominally motivated by. Uh, body cameras as a means of transparency, but they've had to move move against that motivation because uh, they're trying to stay in business and they have to do whatever they can to stay in business. The Amazon Amazon situation is really fascinating, and I'm I'm going to be very curious to see what what shakes out there. I mean, it's akin to a uh, a shareholder lawsuit, right? And I I wonder how you think about it, uh, the situation that they're going through right now, as being different from 
you know, a group of shareholders deciding that uh, the company has made a decision that either negatively affects the the value of shares uh, or has, you know, negatively affected the mission of the company. Is it that different? And and actually, I'm I'm not too familiar with the vote and why the SEC pushed uh, Amazon to to have this vote. Why why did it make that decision to step in? To be honest with you, I, I don't know. I didn't read the SEC's decision specifically to be able to speak to it. <laughs> TBD for both of us then. <laughs> right. And my background is specifically criminal law. So the legal idiosyncrasies of a stockholder suit are not my strong point. But something I, I did want to ask you, an interesting takeaway for me was that a lot of the stories that you tell about the brains behind these technologies and these processes were all stories of men. Jack Maple, yep. Bernhard Goetz, Jake Cover, August Vollmer. I'm curious if you think the world of policing and police tech would be a different place if women were in positions of power. Uh, yeah, I definitely do. Um, but they're not. When you look around, I mean, you know, most of the people who are in command positions in policing are men and are usually white men. And so it was, you know, it was difficult to find anybody who was outside of that mold in these spaces. Um, but I, I certainly encourage women to, to play a, a bigger role in policing. Maybe, uh, maybe they'll, they'll be able to, to fix it, <laughs> fix the problems that, you know, the, the people who I focus on in the book have been unable to fix. What do you think the impact could be? if there was more gender diversity at the top of these companies? Well, not only gender diversity at the top of the companies and at the top of police leadership, but also within policing ranks. Uh, I think uh, the decisions of union leaders and the decisions uh, about the ways that uh, police respond to major policing problems would be a lot different. I think a lot of the changes that were suggested in that 1967 report out of the Johnson administration, a, a lot of those uh, recommendations might have been thought about uh, a little more actively, and community policing might play a bigger role than it than it plays right now. If you had different perspectives making decisions within policing, going a little bit broader, a lot of what you write about in the book is the relationship between industry and the police themselves. Uh, what sense did you get from your reporting, though, that? public pressure on police departments is driving, at least to a certain degree, the adoption of, of many of these technologies and these supposed solutions? Oh, I think it's, I think it's huge. Um, I, I can't remember the, the figure exactly, but, but it's in the book. There's a Cato study that looks at body cameras and the acceptance among you know, U.S. residents of body cameras. And it's like, like 95%. And so that builds in that solution that I'm pointing out, right? So like when Rahm Emanuel is confronting an entire city that is very pissed off about uh, his city's actions in the wake of Laquan McDonald's killing, he knows that he can go to a technological solution. He can say, you know, I know that you want more transparency between police officers and civilians, and I can give that for you. Uh, and I, I can give that to you and I can, I can give it to you through these body cameras. And so the polling suggests that people like the technology, like being told about the technology and are willing to spend public dollars on the technology. So public pressure plays a huge role. in it. And so this is something that you wrote in your book is that between 1981 and 2001, police spending went from 16 billion to $72 billion. And it has only continued to increase 
in the almost two decades since. But also today we have some of the lowest crime rates in the last 50 years in the United States, regardless of what some of our politicians would have us believe. How are we supposed to square these two things? At one point of the argument, you're saying that this is technical solutionism that's not really doing anything but just making us feel good about the situation. But at the same time, murders are down, property crime is down. So is there a correlation? Is this just, is it causation? Like, how do you compare these two facts after having written this book? So let me preface anything I'm about to say by saying that I'm a journalist and not a criminologist. I don't know (laughs) the answer to that question. But I think that there are a lot of factors that go into what produces a uh, a high crime rate or a low crime rate. And those factors go way beyond the actions of police officers. They, you know, involve the economy. They involve, you know, the way that uh, communities interact with one another and, you know, how safe people actually feel in the street. They involve, you know, the activities of, you know, religious order. They involve so many different things. And with policing, I'm not necessarily saying that technology doesn't serve any purpose. Um, in fact, the CompStat portion of my book, you know, a lot of people push back against CompStat for some for some very good reasons related to the way that you know stop and frisk you know created a just a hellscape for many communities in New York City. But the actual technology itself that that Bratton and Maple developed and the mechanism of keeping track of the way that different precincts and their commanders approached crime problems in New York City, it worked. It helped to stem crime problems. And so I I think, and part of that's part of the argument. The part of the argument is that uh, there are good things about these technologies. There is the possibility that the technology can work well. I mean, I, I talk in the book about how I believe that body cameras are a good idea. You know, I think that CompStat is a, is a good idea in premise. My quarrel is, is with how these technologies roll out over time and how the technologies are what people hone in on as the actual solution. When, if you look deeper, you find that there was a much more comprehensive solution that created the positive outcome. With CompStat, for example, it was that, that comprehensive solution to the way that uh, crime was was addressed in combination with the technology. Um, with body cameras, I think body cameras are a good idea because they have the ability to create transparency. But you know, as they're rolled out, legislatures and lawmakers in different parts of the country have decided that the, the footage that is produced by the body camera shouldn't be considered uh, a public document. It should be considered evidence, which makes it a non-transparent uh, device at all. And so, you know, I, I think there are elements of these technologies that are good. It's just the way that they're used um, and the way that they're they're presented, which is the problem. So something that I wanted to wrap up on is you just spent a lot of time uh, with this subject and continue to spend a lot of time with this subject. I'm curious, through the process of reporting this book, was there anything that you were certain of when you started that you no longer believed by the time you were done writing this new book of yours? Oh, I mean, I just talked about CompSet. When I first started this project, I was convinced that CompStat was complete bullshit and that the ideas behind it were, you know, a farce. And when I dug into it, when I found out more about the way that it rolled out, 
and how it was used on a technical level and the way that it was used within NYPD, I became more of a supporter of the idea itself. Tasers, on the other hand, I, I, I was kind of, I wouldn't say that I was supportive of tasers when I first started, but I was, I was certainly more middle of the road. Uh, I was more of the opinion that the tasers were, were potentially a good thing, but that, you know, more attention needed to be paid to the number of lives that had been lost in the, in the wake of, of taser interaction. Uh, and toward the end of my reporting, I really, I really got down on, <laughs> on tasers as, as an effective uh, weapon, at least for the purpose that they were initially introduced. If there's one takeaway from your book, specifically for those working in police procurement departments or, or, or high up in police policy, what is the takeaway you would want those folks to have after completing Thin Blue Lie? I want those people to think critically about their expenditures on these technologies and to get a very clear understanding of what the technologies are supposed to do and what the expectations are in general. And I'd like them to pay attention to where the technologies might go. You know, I, I brought up uh, body cameras and transparency. I, I think a lot of police departments and, you know, the federal government made decisions about spending on body cameras under the understanding that body cameras would be a way to make the line separating civilians and police officers a little thinner and that it might allow police officers to better interact with their communities. And as body cameras rolled out, what you saw is that they became less and less transparent and, and it didn't serve that purpose. And I think if you are somebody on a city council and you're trying to make a decision about whether to approve funding for that kind of technology, you have to think, am I making the decision to spend this money based on my belief that it can increase transparency and then really probing whether or not that's the case. If I'm making the decision about whether to spend money on tasers and I'm making that decision because I believe that they are going to reduce the number of people who are killed on the streets with firearms by police officers, look into the data and make sure that that's really what's happened. That's the main takeaway that I hope they have. I just want them to think more critically about the, the expenditures on these technologies before they make them. Well, Matt, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Matt Stroud is an investigative reporter with a focus on companies that do business with police departments and prisons. I'm Jason Taché, and this is Modern Law Library from the ABA Journal.